0: Yeah, let's do it. All right, so Graham, you want to start off just sharing your general thoughts test day prep final week?
1: Sure. And I guess the first thing I'll say is that I think uh, like the last week is a bit less important than you might think, at least in terms of like what you're studying. Uh, I'm sure Steve has the same thing. Whenever I look at the analytics on my website, there's just like this giant boom like before every test, where suddenly there's like eight times the number of people on my site, and it's like, why weren't you here before? Uh, but like ev- everyone is like. Uh, cramming the test in the final week basically because you've been doing it for several months so like you f- feel like you just got to focus 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 on it but realistically the bulk of your learning came from what you did previously and I think the most important thing you can focus on in the final week is instead getting yourself in a good place in terms of relaxation and mindset so that you can just go in and perform on test day I mean obviously you know if you need a 170 and you're averaging like 158 then you have other issues than simply going in to perform But also, you're probably not going to do that in a week. So in that case, you know, you just want to defer. But assuming you're like roughly at the right range, I'd say the most important thing is actually slowing down and relaxing, uh, especially in the day before the test, making sure you get a good night's sleep, making sure that you're um, you have rested Because like, you know, people that are going to do the Olympics aren't going to be practicing uh, the afternoon, the day before their events, except maybe like some very light stuff. Um, They're mostly resting for the, the big ordeal that comes. So I would focus on doing that, and then maybe, like, one thing, if there's, like, uh, I don't know, say Logic Games was your weakness really drilling those, or if there was, like, a specific question type really drilling that, that could actually see some payoffs, like one targeted thing, but you're not going to see, like, a general all-around improvement everywhere, and it's much more important to just prep yourself uh, in terms of relaxation so your body and mind are ready to perform.
0: That's a solid general overview, Graham. I pretty much agree with everything you said, What I would really emphasize, Techo, what you said is that at this point, you pretty much either know it or you don't, and it's about tying up loose ends, any nagging questions that you don't fully understand, review explanations, do your own analysis, speak with others about it, just wrap them up so that you're walking into test day feeling confident and feeling like you know what you're doing. It's not the time to try out anything radically new. I wouldn't try doing several timed exams in the final week, maybe one or two max, definitely the day before. Rest, I recommend really no studying at all, just getting your zip gallon size Ziploc bag ready and getting your admission ticket photo, all that stuff totally squared away, double-checking things, but mainly relaxing. And I always talk about meditation and yoga and mindfulness, taking a hot bath as like last-minute things to do. I'm going to add on one more that I don't usually talk about, which is restorative yoga. It's not any exertion at all. You basically just get yourself to different poses with a bolster, like a big pillow or some yoga blocks. And it's super relaxing. You sit in one pose for like 10 minutes. It gets me into really, these really deep meditative states where I don't have a care in the world. And what I notice with students is that on test day, they'll enter fight or flight mode and anything that calms you down can help to mitigate that and put you in a good frame of mind. That's what you want to go for.
1: Yeah. And I want to expand on that fight or flight mode a little bit. And by the way, I missed, um due to my own technical problem, I missed, like, about a minute and a half of what you said, so let me know if I'm repeating anything No worries, go for it. um, But uh, that fight-or-flight mode is, like, the one thing to avoid. And generally speaking, because, like, test-day panic is, like, a big thing where people are, like, I don't know, you're scoring 165 on average and you get a 156. And what happens is you just, like, you panicked and, like, everything gunked up and you just couldn't do anything. What's going on there is that your body was basically viewing the LSAT as a mortal threat. Because if you see, like, a... very threatening thing then you will prepare to either fight it or run away from it but it's uh, entirely inappropriate reaction to a piece of paper with logical problems because those systems all shut down so you need to reframe the test in your mind to be not such a big deal and I don't mean just like oh take it easy doesn't matter what I mean is you have to contextualize it properly that like this particular test day doesn't matter compared to the fact that like there are others uh, that you could do, you could always retake like, it's not a one time shot. So even though the LSAT is important, and the set does matter, this particular one doesn't matter as much as you might think it is. And just generally talking your body down from like viewing it as like a, a make or break your whole lifetime thing is what will let you just treat it more as like a some regular high performance situation, but not insanely stressful.
0: Definitely, Graham. The the LSAT in general is very important for admissions, but no particular test date is going to make or break your chances. You can always retake. And law schools do not average multiple LSAT scores. Even the ones that say they do are lying, essentially. The change went into place about 12 or 13 years ago now. It was back in 2006 that the American Bar Association changed things so that law schools only have to report the highest score of their matriculating applicants. So january is not the end of the world whenever you're taking it not the end of the world there's always another test date on the horizon and if it means delaying a year obviously you don't want to have to do that but it is an option and a few more points on the lsat thousands in scholarship money getting into a better law school it's worth it in the long run but january treat it as just another prep test treat it as prep test 87 and know that someday in the future lsac will eventually release it and you'll be taking that one as future applicants will take it as a practice test. And so it's the same as everyone you've done before.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, do you have anything else?
0: I... Let's see. What else could we talk about now? What?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, just oh, okay. preparing uh, all the little things, like your Ziploc and checking that your admission ticket is the same as your ID. They don't have like, a type on your name or something because they're going to try and match those things. You get a very... particular proctor, they might decide, like, oh, well, this, like, typo means you're not who you say you are and you can't take it today. Um, And you just want to make sure that you don't give any reason that you would just, like, get barred from Test Center. Um, So, they've got a whole, like, day of the test rules on LSAC's site. I don't know if anyone wants to link that or if you've got a link handy, Steve. Um, But you should go over that, like, quite uh, in detail. Maybe even print it out just to make sure that you see everything. And prepare your Ziploc in a way. One big rule is that you can't take a cell phone with you or a smartwatch if you have an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or one of those, I'm guessing you can't have a Fitbit. Um. So, you know, Uber, for example, a lot of people might want to take that. You'll instead have to get like the number of a cab company and bring some cash or something, or like you, you can't, uh, but you can't have your phone. I've heard of people like hiding into the bushes outside or something. I, I don't recommend this. Just like make alternate arrangements, pretend it's 1998, and uh, it'll be all right. Um, But prepare your your Ziploc bag. If you're you're doing any time practice sections or time tests, you should take them uh, with that on hand just to sort of get used to it. And uh, yeah, do you have anything on the point?
0: Yeah, totally. So if you haven't practiced a timed exam with an analog wristwatch, do that now rather than later. You want to at least have one opportunity to do the test with the timing that you're going to have on test day. If you're used to a digital watch or used to using your phone, you don't want to do that for the first time on test day suddenly analog if you can't even read a clock or something like that so you want to have all those things squared away don't hide your phone in the bushes you'll be stressing about it just have a phone number of a cap company like graham said ask the, one of the proctors to borrow one of their phones but yeah go over the de- t- day of test link on lsac site i just put it in the chat on the sidebar here but make sure that you're not bringing anything prohibited. And make sure that you set everything aside the day before or two days before. Maybe if you're doing a snack like a banana, granola bar, energy bar, energy drink, whatever it is, you want to be aware the number of ounces in the energy drink. You want to have eaten that snack the day of the test, the day of a practice test beforehand. So if you're taking the LSAT 9 a.m., maybe take a timed exam Wednesday or Thursday this week if possible. Or even if not, take the practice exam in the evening, but still have that same snack to and emphasize that association, and put yourself in a positive frame of mind. You're again not doing anything new the day of.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you just mentioned the watch. I wanted to add on that. Like one reason to take it with a watch beforehand is you actually know that your watch works. I have more than once heard of a student who just didn't have a functional watch and they didn't realize it till test day. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. You want Another to thing. Out. Oh, Go sorry. Ahead. Another thing. Speaking of watches, I. There are some specific LSAT-specific watches that some people have been selling online. And I saw in recent years that some of the proctors have been um, banning students from using those watches. Some of these ones with the color coding and the 35-minute countdown. I would recommend emailing LSAC if you have any concerns or questions about whether your watch is valid and having that printout of the email, bringing it with you to test day so that if the proctors challenge you using a particular watch, you have documentation from LSAC. It won't necessarily guarantee that you get to use the watch, but it will increase the likelihood that the proctors will let you do what you want. Graham, have you heard anything about these watches? These LSAC watches?
1: No, I haven't. I tend not to recommend anyway, personally. uh, I just wanted to give a quick tip on how to set like a regular watch. Um, I like to set the regular watch at like 12 noon. And then, well, actually, sorry, I set it to 11.25, and then 35 minutes later is 12 noon. So that means you just set every section to 11.25, and that's your 35 minutes. I think that, like, gets rid of the whole need of one of these LSAT-specific watches, because once you practice winding them, it takes, like, a second and a half to wind it back from 12 noon to 11.25, and um, there's no need for any specific 35-minute timer that may give you trouble. But I, I think Steve's advice to check with LSAC is is good in the event that you do have one.
0: No, right, I think your advice as well about winding the clock, winding the watch, the minute hand around, I think is solid. There's no reason not to do that. And even though the th- first three sections are back to back, you do still have enough of a tiny buffer of a second or two just to wind it back. It's not going to pose any problem for you.
1: Yeah, there's no else, problem.
0: Uh, so go ahead, Graham.
1: Oh, I was going to say there is no problem, by the way, with taking like a five second break during the test to wind a watch, to breathe to just collect your senses. A lot of people like rush, 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 rush. And this is one of the big mistakes of test day, that like, if you are performing at a high level, you need to find the space in what you're doing to take a small breather and reset so you're not constantly at maximum stress level the whole time. This will give you, this will keep your reserves and let you get through the whole thing and keep high functioning rather than like, slowly burning away your your energy and ability.
0: Yeah, I think taking a few seconds for a mental reset especially to help you get out of a, a spiral of despair if things aren't going right. I think that taking a few extra seconds just to do something else is really useful to break you out of a, a, if you're stuck in a loop, for example. And so for myself personally, I don't do it with the watch, but I would like bubble in between question by question and use the bubbling as a sort of reset on a similar note. But someone asked, just related to the watch thing, Faye said, so there won't be a master clock at the test center I think it would vary depending on the test center and depending on the room. It's not a requirement that LSAC provide a clock that's visible to all test takers. I've taken it before where the clock was behind me in the back of the room. In other facilities, if it's a high school, university, whatever, they'll probably have a clock, but there's no guarantee. And so it is valuable to bring your own watch.
1: Yeah, even proctors that are supposed to call out a warning before every section humans are humans and sometimes it doesn't happen. So you can't even count on that. All you can really count on is your watch.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I wouldn't count on the practice for the five minute warning either. You wanna have your own internal sense of rhythm as you for your pacing in general. And that's something to practice in the final week, work on your pacing and endurance with these time sittings. If you can't do five sections in, in one sitting, do three. And that'll at least be something. But yeah, I, I'd love for you to get to the point where you can do a timed section with no watch at all, and still be virtually guaranteed to do it in 35 minutes or less. I think that's a goal, but if that's not possible, that's okay. You have your watch, look at it yourself for your five minute warning.
1: Mm. A couple other things I usually tell students beforehand. Um, One are like, I hear a surprising number of times where like some little thing, like having to go to the washroom or needing coffee mess people up on test day. And so as much as possible, for, like, these five things you should try and prepare yourself in advance. And these are the five things I can think of that tend to mess up, like, a test day experience. One would be tobacco, if you're a smoker. Um, I haven't smoked myself, but I'm guessing you can just sort of... Actually, I'll list the five things first. Tobacco, caffeine, water, going to the washroom, like, peeing, uh, and food. Because some people smoke a lot. Some people constantly drink coffee. Some people are drinking water all day long. Some people have to pee a whole lot, and some people eat food constantly. Like, I mean, if you're one of those, like, six meals a day sort of people. So, if you're in any one of those categories, what you wanna do, is, it's a little bit late now, but not too late, is just taper off the activity. Um, even six days is enough time to, say, reduce the amount of coffee that you have, because the body's a very adaptable organism, and if you just reduce the amount of coffee, then you won't need as much coffee, and you'd be better able to get through to five or so hours of test day without like a caffeine crash. Same goes with water. You can just drink a bit less or drink with wider gaps in your drinking. Cause I don't think you can have water on your desk. I think you can only have it in a break. So it was like three hours without water. Just like ask yourself, like, do I do any of these things constantly? And then set yourself up so that you're doing it like test day where you won't be able to do those things for three hours or more and just to be prepared and then taper it down, your body will adapt.
0: I think those are some good, great like physical, biological things, especially to think about. I've got a couple that are more on the mental end that I thought I'd share. Um, One of them is getting distracted by what other people are doing. So specifically, if other people are working faster than you, slower than you, making too much noise, you want to ideally have practiced at least one exam in a mildly distracting environment like a library, a coffee shop, somewhere with some ambient noise and a little bit of motion, so that you can work past those distractions of whatever's happening around you. That is pretty much irrelevant. The person next to you could be doing games, you're doing reasoning. They're doing reading comp, you're doing something else altogether. And maybe their pacing is not correct. So just keep in mind and that in mind and trust in yourself. Another thing I'd say, and this is probably the biggest mistake I see, is getting bogged down in a particular question. So if you're on a particular, let's say, logical reasoning question, and you're spending minute after minute, but you're not making any headway in your understanding, it requires a certain degree of mindfulness to sk- to leave that question alone, flag it, mark it off, come back to it later. Trust that you'll have the time. And if not, that's okay. That was a hard question, and you're better served knocking out easier questions, even if they come later in the section, and then come back to what gave you trouble if you still have the time and i guess one more thing i would share is waiting until the end to bubble that's a huge mistake i see people make sometimes and it's enormously problematic of course because what happens if you run out of time if the proctor forgets to give the 5 minute warning you're essentially screwed and so that's why i recommend either bubbling question by question or passage by passage or game by game
1: yeah i, th- I think that's all good advice i interesting about like comparing yourself to what other people are doing because it occurs to me that this might happen with some people, if you see someone else like going faster than you, it's not a reason to think, like, oh, no, I'm going too slow. Um, your pace is the pace that you set from doing practice tests, and that shouldn't change just because, like, the person on the left of you is going faster than you would expect. Um, this is, like, a normal human thing to, like, compare to what's directly in front of us, but it's the internal pace that actually matters, because they could be going fast because um, they're just rushing and they're not doing very well. It doesn't mean that they're, like, getting a 175 and... Beating you. And even if they were, that still doesn't matter. If you're at a 168 level, then that's the level you should try to aim at. And trying to pace yourself to a 175 person is not sensible because you'll go too fast and do worse.
0: Yeah, most likely. I mean, you're never going to see these people again anyway. So it doesn't, it's not an ego thing. But aside from that, let's say you're going for 165 plus or 160 plus and that other person is barely breaking 150, let's say. So you'd have very different pacing strategies. The person looking to break 150, they, probably shouldn't be attempting every single question they should be focusing on easier things in more depth and if you're going for a higher score then of course you go for everything but everyone has their own style their own reasons and again the order of the exam varies from person to person so they're not even necessarily working on the same questions that you are
1: very good point a lot of people don't know that they do not have the sections in the same order
0: it's scrambled uh, and the experimental can be any of the five
1: yep oh yeah the experimental section so Basically, don't put any thought into it, Um, because the experimental section, despite the wacky sounding name, is just intended to be a section like any other. They're making the new sections for a future test, so they're not designing it to be different from the other sections. They're not, like, doing wild, wacky experiments. They're making normal LSAT questions, and uh, you shouldn't be able to tell any difference in it. Heard of one guy who like just napped through what he thought was the experimental section because he thought he could call it and he, uh, well, he did not nap through the right section, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you never know it, you know, especially with curveball weird games in recent exams. It's really hard to tell what's a real game and what's an experimental game. And they may not, they may not even look that different.
1: Yeah, like LSAT 85 was probably an experimental section on LSAT 78 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, maybe with a slight exact length of the cycles, but
0: maybe with a slight modification if anything yeah but lsac they're pretty good at what they're doing i remember this this guy i know who used to write lsac questions he said that for every 10 he submitted they would accept one to be on a future lsat or at least tested on a future lsat so they have extremely rigorous standards the experimental is not going to have totally flawed questions it's more about the difficulty ratings being slightly off compared to a normal section but you wouldn't be able to tell that in fact I'm not even sure that Graham and I would be able to tell that. What do you think, Graham? No. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I, wouldn't I would admit. not bet my career or <laughs> life or, or, a sing, or a single even point, my pinky finger on it. Yeah, no, you don't. Want, you don't want to bet a single point on it. Just do your best on it. The writing yeah. sample is where you can take it easy a bit.
1: Yeah, no one, no one cares about. It. I mean, do write something, but no one really cares.
0: Yeah. So um, we got a question related from Megan. Can you confirm that everyone in the room will be writing the sections in different orders? Well, I think there will be some overlap, almost certainly, but. Uh, there's not going to be a, a, it's not as if everyone's going to have the same thing. There will be a variety yep. of different orderings.
1: Yeah. And I can, I can confirm, I moderate the like post-test discussion on Reddit. So every like time people like come in and say the section order they had, and there's usually like six to seven different section orders. Like some people have LG first, some people have RC first. So you're likely to see all of those within the same room, I think.
0: Yeah, I would I would think so as well
1: um also i just want to make like a general point uh notice that like basically all of the advice we're giving is about how to not mess up your prep test average uh there's been some questions which we'll get to a bit later but there's been some questions about like you know ways to do well lsat trends that sort of thing but we basically never hear of anyone say like "Well, yeah i did like really well because i like thought of like this strategy before test day it's all just about performing at the level that you've got and not screwing up and we've heard all the different ways that people have had like a epic flame out on test day so we're telling you those now so you can avoid them and that's that's the mainstay of any like final week advice
0: i think that's that's a really solid point graham because in the final week it's not as if you're going to necessarily have a magic increase of five ten or fifteen points i think it's more about pulling it all together and avoiding a drop from where you've previously been. So if someone's been scoring consistently at 167, it's not really about suddenly pushing to 170 or 175 with just a few days left. To me, I think it's more about maintaining that 167, maybe getting a few points more ideally, of course, but it's about not having one of those famed test day drops. I think that's really what you want to avoid. It's this concept, you know, via negativa, you want to remove the bad things so that everything just is smooth sailing essentially.
1: Uh, what else? Um, oh, just a couple things on like bedtime. Because, like, a co- another common bad thing is like not sleeping the day before. Because, uh, whether or not you're prone to insomnia, you're going to be more stressed the night before. And so, you want to take extra care to sleep well. And there are two things you can do. The first, well, more than two, but here's two big things. Um, the first is sort of like mapping out what time you should be getting up on test day. So, you know, if your test, uh, geez, I'm, I'm so bad at these details. I don't know what time the test starts, 8.30. Um, but I think it, it
0: starts, I think pencils start at nine, the exam itself. Nine, yeah, okay. maybe so eight it starts 30, it, 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 it's around then.
1: Oh yeah. So you got to arrive at eight thirty. Is that it?
0: Or maybe even eight o'clock. I forget <laughs> myself.
1: Yeah. Anyway, you got to arrive at some time. So you then subtract like 40 minutes commute time and then you subtract, uh, like X minutes, like shower time, X minutes, eating time, X minutes, go for a walk time, X minutes of lying bedtime, bed time. And you, you figure out like, okay, I've got to wake up at six o'clock. Well, that means you should be aiming to wake up at six o'clock, like starting now. Unless you've got like, some life commitment that prevents that, you should just be shifting your bedtime forward. So it's not like a big change um, by test day. So like every day of the week, just like get up a little bit earlier. Um, and then the night before test day, just take some precautions like uh, dimming your lights if you've got dimmers or turning off the main li- ones and you using lamps. Um, not using your phone after dark to the extent possible. I mean, after, it's pretty dark early on now because of winter, but you know, in the hour or so before bedtime, trying to avoid using your phone. Um, just do relaxing stuff. Get lots of exercise that same day. Um, eat a bit earlier so you get sleepy a bit earlier. Those are all things you can do to like make yourself sleepy sooner. Um, and just do those things so that you your body is inclined in a direction to fall asleep early, despite the fact that it's a bit stressed.
0: Yeah, no, I think those are all solid points. Um, going off that, I think there are four big things you want to have right in your life in order to be at the top of your game. Graham touched on sleep a lot. That's essential. Along with those, I would add diet, exercise, and meditation or some sort of relaxation. And so they all tie together, of course. So for example, if you eat like hot wings late at night after 11 p.m., you might not sleep that great. Same goes if you drink a lot of alcohol or engage in any other drug use. Like That can have a major impact on your mental state and affect your sleep at the same time. So it's a double whammy. You really want to avoid all of that. This is a time to be clean, be healthy, keep it light, keep it simple. Don't do anything crazy in this final week, especially with regard to diet or drug use, especially don't, if you, I, this is not the time to start experimenting with Adderall or Ritalin or anything like that. I think you want to have, if you if you have been prescribed those things, you want to test them out for at least a few weeks, ideally in the lead up. And if not, it could affect your sleep, mental state, you get a low practice test score. Everything starts to unravel. So you really want to have your mental state solid with regard to exercise Anything's good, don't overdo it though. I think yoga is perfect because it's a great balance of mindfulness and relaxation, but also some physical exercise. And if anyone can't make it to yoga class, I would highly recommend the YouTube channels, Yoga with Adrian and Fightmaster Yoga. You just search those, they're both great resources. I've done them a lot personally. Put them on your TV or your phone, iPad, whatever. Great way to do it from home.
1: Yep, great advice. And in particular, nothing new yeah this week if something is good then it's something to do all the time or to have done constantly during tests you don't want to switch up a system um that would be when you've got like a few months to test a new thing but yeah i agree with all those four points of like the um that those are the pillars of good mental performance sleep food exercise relaxation possibly in that order but i don't know it varies but they're all important to performing at your best and you know If you're already at the score you need, just even taking more than one day off this week and going very light can be helpful um, because that's the more you're already at where you need to be, the more you should focus merely on like meeting your performance rather than like uh, some final push. I think,
0: yeah, agreed. And it's funny, a funny thing because the LSAT score, your true score has a margin of error of three points on either end. So let's say your true score is a 167. You could get a 160, a 170 one day, a 164 another day. That's a six-point range. But what accounts for that if your abilities are constant? I think it's these four things, sleep, diet, exercise, meditation. And of course, there's an element of randomness as well. Maybe there's an exam that has harder games and you're not as good on games or reading comp or vice versa, or just luck, whatever it may be. But mental performance performing at your peak, I think, comes down to those things, and that's what helps you score on the higher end of your supposed true score within that band.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. So I do have a... Actually, no, this is still, like, a general thing, but it's not, like, a mental game thing. Uh, This comes up a lot. uh, Cancellation. Um, And someone actually asked about that earlier. And I guess I should mention this in tandem with withdrawal. Um, Basically, someone asked, like, should I cancel? The answer is no. Unless... Uh, you just, I don't know, you passed out and you know that you've bubbled in no answers. Well, sure, cancel. Or, you know, you left halfway through the test and you know you've only bubbled in half the answers. Sure, cancel. So there's like a clear mathematical reason that like you're like 20 points lower than it doesn't hurt to cancel. But then again, it doesn't really help that much. Like schools really just look at the highest score. And so even if you have like a, a low score and a high score on record, it doesn't matter that much at all. Maybe not at all. Um, But the more common scenario is somebody just gets out of the test and they feel bad, and they're like, "Oh, I think I should cancel." And I'm sure there have been many 170 plus scores canceled this way, because you're like, "You'll never know." But I can tell you that like 90% of people come out of the LSAT and they feel bad. You've just done a very long stressful thing, and your energy's drained. Of course, you're going to feel bad. But unless you have like a clear reason, it doesn't mean you performed bad. That's just how people feel. So canceling in those circumstances is strongly, strongly not advised because there's no benefit and the potential that you're canceling an excellent
0: score. Agreed. I think that if there's if something catastrophic happened, like the fire alarm went off, there was a marching band outside, the proctors totally screwed up, the person behind you vomited on you or something, like any of those things would be valid reasons to cancel in my opinion. But if it's just you did a little bit worse than usual, you feel that way, you have a vague sense of unease, Games or reading comp or whatever else didn't go as well as you would have hoped, but nothing awful happened. I don't see much benefit to canceling since law schools only take the highest. I don't think a cancellation looks bad on your record, but at the same time, why deny yourself the chance that you may have done better than you thought? Yeah. There are plenty and of people since- who score in the high 170s who felt that vague sense of unease also, and it's a good thing they didn't cancel because they end up with great scores.
1: And look at it from the perspective of an admissions officer. Uh, like they're only required to submit the high score. So, you know, if they got a 170 on record, then that's what they submit, and that's all they like legally care about. Now, of course they are gonna think, you know, if they see like a 150 and a 170, they're gonna think differently than if they see just a single one seventy or a one sixty five and a one seventy, and that may influence them in some way. But the question you gotta ask yourself is if they see a cancel in the one seventy, what kind of inference are they gonna draw from the fact that there's a cancel? Probably a bad score, right? That's what they're going to think. And so there's not really any benefit either. Because, like, if you were going to get a a one, let's say you're aiming for 165, your score was going to be a 158, and then you canceled. Do you really think that like 158 and then 165 later looks much different than cancel 165 later? If anything, you might think the cancel is lower than the 158. Um, So if you just have like vague unease that it's lower than it should be. Like it could potentially even look worse to cancel, um, because they may think the worst.
0: Yeah, I think that there's, there's not, there's just not really a benefit, and there's no need to explain away a lower score and a higher score. People always ask about should I write an addendum because of my LSAT score, and honestly, I you know it might make you feel better to do that, but honestly, I've talked to admission officers; they really don't care. They just want to see a high score. That's what their jobs ride on is getting applicants with higher scores so that the school can rise in the rankings. That's really all they care about at the end of the day, getting the best qualified people possible. But that measure is based on the highest LSAT score of students who apply. It comes down to that.
1: Yeah. And even if you have a fire alarm, but you still perform, like you get all the time done and you uh, get the timing done, like don't even cancel then. Like (laughs) necessarily- Yeah, as long as
0: you get it done. As long as you get it done, that's all that matters.
1: Yeah, so I, I would just basically don't cancel is because this comes up all the time and that's mainly my advice. And you're going to be staring at this form on test day thinking, should I cancel? And I want you to hear us saying like, no. Don't <laughs> <do it." laughs>
0: but yeah, but when it comes to withdrawals though, I do think that a withdrawal is a totally different story. If you're going to take the LSAT, you're registered, but you don't feel ready and you've never scored anywhere close to where you want to be, then just withdraw. Law schools will never know that you were even registered for this test date and you can always register for a later one.
1: Exactly. If you're aiming for 165 and you're currently scoring 145, just don't take it on Saturday. Like that, you're not gonna have a test day miracle. Um, just withdraw, so you don't have a either a really low score or cancel on your record. Like it's not really bad to have it there, but why would you?
0: Yeah, people um, always people always say to me though that they want to take the exam even if they don't really feel ready, just to have a, a dry practice run to see what test day is like. But I wonder to what extent does that really mitigate any stress surrounding the exam? And then I think about, well, you could just take a proctored exam provided for free by companies like Kaplan and Princeton Review. You can even bring your own exam and they'll proctor it for you for free. They're just doing it for marketing, but you can use their test center environment. And that would strike me as being a somewhat roughly uh, analogous situation. What do you think around this, Graham?
1: Yeah, I think that's much better. Just like if you're in any big city, you'll find like private proctoring things. Um, There are proctor apps you can use. You can just get Uh, a stern friend or family (laughs) member, you know, like that one person you're afraid to be late with, I just get them to proctor your test. Um, It's all pretty much the same thing. Do it in a cafe or somewhere to simulate it as well. Um, But because if you go in when you're just not prepared and you take the test, like, sure, you're getting some test experience, but you're getting experience of doing the test badly. And that's what's going to be on your mind when, like, you take it again. Like, your only memories of taking it are when you were not skilled. So if you later get skilled... Yeah, so if you later are skilled in taking it, like all of your like muscle memory of the test is when you weren't good at it. And like, what's the, I don't see much benefit um, to that. The proctoring and rigorously simulating like the whole time required and endurance and so on is a fine benefit, a fine substitute.
0: Yeah, and it also seems to me that the part of the stress of the test day environment is knowing that you're doing it for real. And if you're taking it just just to have a dry run, part of you will know that it's not for real. And so I think you're not actually going to get that benefit. I think that ultimately you've, the way you reduce stress is all the other things we talked about, like recognizing that this is not the only chance to take the LSAT, recognizing that you have prepped a lot and you know what you're doing, like that, that you've taken lots of timed exams and you've got lots of high practice scores under your belt. Those are the things I think will ultimately help you feel confident walking in on the real thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um- So that's all I've got there. Another thing that people have asked about in the chat here are test trends, like differences in the new tests, anything that they should prepare for specifically. I don't have too much in this with like one exception, but I also feel I'm not very suited to like judge trends like that. So do you have anything in particular you tell people?
0: The biggest thing I'd say is that overall, I think it's gotten harder on average. I think the test has gotten more difficult. And I also think that games in particular We see a lot of these curveball, weird sorts of games that buck the norm. I think those have been going on for the 60s, 70s, and 80s already. So there's plenty of practice material on that end. But if you wanted more practice, you could do some of the oldest games from even like the first 10 or 20 exams. You see a lot of weird games out there that don't fit neat molds or classifications like linear or grouping, things of that nature. So that's the biggest thing I noticed. But overall, I think that, most mostly the exams remain fairly constant what do you what do you notice Graham
1: yeah that's pretty much the same thing um Some people have done like more finer analysis of trends, but a like I don't know how consistent it is and b like I don't even know that it really matters because it's like it's hard for me to pick up on intuitively so I don't know that there's anything really prepable there um but it is harder so like one thing you can do I guess it's a little bit late for this if you haven't done any recent tests up until now, then you should probably try one. But normally, I guess this would be something we'd tell people like a few weeks out, do some of the recent tests, you know, in the, the late 70s and the early 80s and so on, so that you're used to the, the harder thing. As for why it's harder, it's because people prep more, I think, so they've had to increase the curve for recent cohorts. It's, I mean, that's not officially confirmed. That's just my, my informed speculation. Um, I mean, oh, actually, there is one trend, but like, see, I don't know what this will do for you. But uh, I have noticed there's more logical reasoning type questions in reading comprehension. Yeah, I've
0: noticed that as well, that some of the tougher reading comp questions are analogous, like they're strengthen or weaken or resolve the paradox, even some really weird twists. And that just requires being good at those LR question types is what I tell people.
1: Exactly. So it's it's not really actual testing, like like, get good at logical reasoning, like, well, thanks, like (laughs) you're already trying to do that. So that doesn't really help you to know that like RT is becoming more like that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think overall, I'm not a big fan of these sorts of predictions. I think that it's really about just improving your overall abilities and you'll be well suited to deal with whatever they throw your way yeah
1: but there are two things like steve said uh there's the different unusual games so two tips for those one is do the recent tests that have them and redo them so that you sort of without reference to like explanations or other stuff so that you get an intuition for how to do them you can check the explanations later but you should do them yourself a few times to try and like figure out how to do them on your own, because that's the skill that you'll need for the new, new, unusual game. Because none of us doing it will have seen it either. We just use our general reserve skill of like, okay, how should I set this thing up since I have no model for doing so? And you have to be a bit creative. Um, So learning to do that yourself is really helpful, either from the old games that aren't familiar or from just repeating some of the new, unfamiliar games. Um, But the second thing to know about these this is more of a mental game thing, is that they're not actually hard, per se, in most cases. They're just different. And what I mean is, I'm guessing for most of you, when you take logic games, it's, like, maybe the biggest shock. Like, I mean, some people are just going to the end of the bat, but it's, like, one of the most different things on the L set, and you're probably much better at it than when you started compared to, like, the other two sections. Like, the gap is bigger. Uh, And the reason is you've just learned the conventions of it. So you know all these, like, funny little diagrams and logical stuff and so on, um, but if you take someone that's like never seen any logic games, like they're all going to seem hard and unusual. And the new unusual game isn't necessarily harder. I've I've like tried this on people that like haven't taken an LSAT before, and they didn't rate those games as particularly hard. They're just different. So you're highly skilled at the things you know, and then you're throwing something to test the same skills, but a different factor. Um, it's like you ran the same uh, obstacle course every day. And then suddenly people put you on a new obstacle course. Test the same skills, but it's different, so you need a bit of adaptation. But what you gotta remind yourself is just this, that it's not like some insanely hard thing, and it is using the skills that you have, and they're not gonna make something that's so hard that like nobody on this test can do it. Basically, if you're good at logic games generally, then it is within your capability to do this game, but what you have to do is like stop and think and read and understand and take a little bit more time. To think about the setup and how things interact and what's going on. And that's what let you do well in it. You're not like you didn't fail to study and like miss something, because that's what a lot of people feel. It's just, it's new. Every, everyone's going to have this pause of uncertainty, but you can go through it.
0: I think that's a great overview, Graham. What I would add to it is that a lot of people, they're good at ordering games, they're good at grouping games. And part of that is ability, which is awesome. But part of it's also, copying templates and diagram styles they've learned from other people. And those can only get you so far. I think that part of why LSAC started adding these weird curveball games is because they wanted to throw those people for a loop and test the actual underlying skills when the ability to copy other diagramming techniques was removed. So do you have the ability to deal with something unfamiliar being thrown at you and trust that The same underlying principles that apply to all logic games can even be found within these weird ones, whether they be like a pattern game or a mapping game or something else we don't even have a name for. I think at a certain point where you want to get to the top level, 170 plus, it's about developing your own styles when necessary, being able to adapt to these unfamiliar situations. And that's why I always tell people, do the oldest games, do the ones in the first 10 exams, the first 20 exams, because... Some of those were really, really weird. Like you don't see anything like it in the 30s and up. There's even one game from the first 10 that has an actual diagram on the page. And you would never see that today. And some people were actually confused. I did this game with a student recently. I think it was from exam seven or eight or something. And I was like, they're giving you the diagram. This is making it easier for you. But <laughs> he was so, so thorough. Like, why are they giving me this diagram? What am I supposed to do with this? And like, it's helping you. But the fact that it was strange. That alone made it hard, but it doesn't need to be. There's always the yeah. same underlying principles. And you have to just adopt those rules, even if they're abstract, just ad- adopt them into your, your memory, your working memory, so that you can apply them over the course of the game, even if they're not easily diagrammed.
1: Yeah, great advice. Um, I also recommend to people, in the same vein of doing older exams, uh, once you're above, like, 20 points or so in logic games, like, stop using exclamations. Like, I mean, I make exclamations, so this may seem like I'm, like, telling you not to use my stuff, but I am. Um, you should, when you, and, and you can still do this in the final week, by the way. There's still time to, like, practice logic games for this. Uh, once you do a section, do it again on your own and try and improve your method on those games and do that a few times, like, three to four times, and then you can look at explanations But what you want to be doing once you already get to, like, quite skills is, like, get rid of the training wheels. Stop just, uh, taking what other people are giving you and start using your own creativity to create your own system for thinking of through the shortcuts and little diagramming things, and you'll probably like innovate a bit to have like slightly different diagrams because, like, I'm sure Steve and I's methods are probably like 85% similar, 15% different at least on logic games, just because our brains are a bit different. And there's like little bits that like make more sense to me in one way, and for him, it'd be a different way. And I expect most people at a high level have their own little quirks in diagramming too.
0: Yeah, you don't need to stress about those differences in style. Like Graham's explanations are great. I've got my explanations as well. There are other ones online. And they're all pretty good. If someone's creating tons of LSAT explanations, they probably know something about the LSAT. And so they're good, they're valid, but they differ. And that's okay. Yours can be 100% correct and valid, but still differ in style. And you don't need to change your way to someone else's way, especially if you're getting the questions right. I'd say overall, you want to at least start off with someone else's style because they've honed it over a long period of time. But at the end of the day, you're the one taking the LSAT. You're the one who's got to have your diagrams working for you. So if what you see in someone else's explanations doesn't work for you and you need to modify it, that's okay. Trust yourself and have some freedom in what you're doing with games and it'll work out okay in the end for you.
1: Yeah, and I think there still is time in the final week to... Put this in practice you've been religiously using explanations every time you do a game just like stop and start working on your own and you will train that skill of thinking of how to do something without someone telling you how to do it yeah which agreed. is like yeah most valuable medical for games there's, there's one other thing on games uh that's somewhat new i don't remember exactly when you started showing up but that's rule substitution questions and these, there's not that many of them, but there's maybe like one or two per game section. And for most people, those are extremely hard questions. I don't think they're hard. I think that's just, since there's so few of them, you don't really get a chance to drill them. And so you're not practicing them the way you are for other games. So if you can flip those from hard to easy, then that's a big benefit. It's the same benefit to like practicing sufficient assumption questions on logical reasoning, which are like hard at first, but easy to learn and you can flip a hard, infrequent thing to an easy thing. So what I recommend for rule substitution, um, enter this in Google. This should work. So just copy the whole thing. It's like site um, colon com then rule substitution. You may not know this, but you can take like any site and just do that in a Google search and it'll return results only for net site. I should really make a page sometime that just has my explanations for rule substitution questions, but in the meantime, this is how you can find them in my own explanations. I don't know if you've got a blog post that has like rule substitution questions, Steve. Yeah, but basically the idea is you just make a drill set of rule substitution because I find almost nobody does this. So there's definitely time in the last few days to do this. Basically, you would take some games you've already done. um, So you're not, you know, the goal here is not to burn through like seven new prep tests, but take take about seven games you've already done, set them all up, um, and then just do the rule substitution question and then check the explanation for it in this case, because here you want to actually learn the method. And the goal here is just to see it like seven times in a row and start to notice the pattern that's in them. Um, because if you've never done that, then, well, you probably can learn it pretty quickly. You just haven't tried. Um, the, the rough pattern is that the only way to substitute a rule is to use some of the other rules. Because, um, you know, if, if, if the rule says, like, F is before G, there's no way of doing that. Um, like, I, I can't just say the rule again. I would need to have some other rule that interacts with the new rule that gets the same effect in an indirect way. And that kind of thinking is a skill that can be trained, and that's how you solve real substitutions quickly. It's like looking around at other factors and seeing what's interacting with F and G. How can I replicate those effects by latching on to some other existing rule? And so just by going through a set of them you can learn this and most people just haven't so there's probably a point or two for you
0: in there i think that's a great technique so basically what you're saying is by the way these games start these questions started in exam 58 and up so you do have at this point nearly at least 30 exams worth of games where you have at least one question like this but so what you're basically you're looking for something that's just totally equivalent doing only the games like the setup the rules diagram, and then just do that one question, which is typically the last question of the game. You're looking for something that is that correct, Graham? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you're looking for something that's just equivalent in meaning, but expressed differently. Yeah. And so, go ahead, Graham. Sorry.
1: Oh, I was just going to say. Uh, I, I guess I should qualify this. So, like, you know, you might do one or two questions on the game. Like, the, like for me as a tutor, I can just set up a game very quickly, and I know all the rules. But I realize like. Um, that might be like the expertise speaking. And if it takes you a question or two to get into a game, then as part of this drill, get into the game first, then do the rule substitution question. That That's the goal, basically, where like you've got a mastery of the rules, then you do the rule substitution question. But you don't care about doing everything. You just want to get it so you've got the rules internalized, then do the rule substitution, analyze it, then do the next game. Same thing.
0: I like that. But for test day itself, would you want students to do the rule substitution question? last in the order given or would you recommend doing it after the orientation question
1: oh definitely last i think well i mean i don't know if you have a different view but for in my view like to do it well you need to really have the rules internalized and i expect you'll have the rules most internalized by the time you have the last question so um it probably makes sense to do that last
0: yeah i would agree with that and i think also the benefit of doing them last is that then you can use all your previously drawn hypothetical scenarios to help you disprove answer choices because, because, oh, bro- yeah. Because if a if a given answer choice on rule substitution would render a previously valid scenario invalid, then it's more restrictive in some way, and so it could not be possibly logically equivalent. So I have yeah, seen exactly. a lot of times using the previous hypotheticals as well as the correct answer to to the orientation question to help solve those rule substitutions.
1: I was what was I saying? Oh yeah, I was saying do them at the end because you know the game the best by then, and uh, when you're setting up the games. Just uh, the goal is just to have the rules internalized and do the rule substitution. If you can just set it up and go directly to that, then that's your drill. If you need a question or two to be sure of the rules, then do that and do the rule substitution. But the goal is not to do the whole game. The goal is just to, in rapid succession, do like six or seven rule substitution questions in a row so you can start to see the patterns and how they're replacing it and start to see like, oh, that's how they're doing it. It's so simple. That's the moment you're like looking for.
0: No salad, I think that's one of those things like where when something comes up so infrequently it's hard to focus yourself on it because you're only being reminded of it every now and then kind of like evaluate the argument questions and logical reasoning. They come up like once every eight exams or something like that. And there've only, therefore there've only been like maybe 10 of them ever. But if you isolate those 10, you can learn them. I think the same is true here. So I think Graham's tip of focusing on those specifically is really solid.
1: Yeah. I had the same thing with, with uh, comparative reading when it first came out, I was bad at it because there weren't that many. And then I didn't, do any particular strategy. I just got go to it over time. Like, oh, I guess I just had to see more.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering if people have other test day questions for us, those taking in January. I think we've covered a lot of what's in the chat already, but does anyone have any yeah. specific test day questions for January that they want to ask before we move on to something else?
1: Yeah. One person did have a question that I think is January when it says, at one point, have you read one too many at books? Should I just be drilling? At this point, you should mainly just be drilling unless you've been reading something that is like it feels new and revolutionary you're like whoa like actually this is really good and i should be reading this so like use your subjective experience if you're just reading more stuff that is like correct but familiar i'd say drill instead but if you're reading something new like if anything in this webinar is like new and you're like oh i should try that then you know try that but otherwise just drill
0: yeah, so don't reread the same book you've been reading for months. Like as a, as a refresher, that's that time is probably better spent just doing some more practice problems. Someone is asking about sufficient necessary assumption questions. So that's a that's a major topic that I think could definitely help someone pick up a few points in the final week because it's those are both common question types. The way I explain it is that necessary assumption questions are a very specific kind of must-be-true question, and you want to gravitate towards more moderate language. It's something that's required in order for the argument to be true in the first place, and you spot, that, you spot these questions with necessary assumption indicator words, words that are synonymous with necessity, like depends upon, requires, and assumes. On the flip side, sufficient assumption questions are opening the door to new information, where new information in the choices, if true, would guarantee the argument 100% leaving no ambiguity at all. So it doesn't matter how strong the language is as long as it gets the job done. And so sufficient assumption questions, you determine them based or ID them based on the, ter- the term in the question stem synonymous with sufficiency, like allows, enables, follows logically if assumed, and properly inferred if assumed. But these questions require very different perspectives. And so it's important to help the difference.
1: Yeah, and I'll just give a practical example to show the difference in the strength of these. Let's take, like, doing well on the LSAT. I'll give one necessary thing, one thing that's sufficient, and one thing that's, like, it strengthens the potential of getting a good LSAT score, but it's neither necessary or sufficient. We'll see if you can see which one is which. Uh, so one would be having a accurate copy of the answer sheet and knowing that it's an accurate copy. Uh, second would be being able to breathe, like, I don't mean, like, meditative breathing. I mean, like, just you can breathe and you're not uh, uh, out of oxygen. And the third would be being really good at logic. So I'm guessing it was pretty clear which of those is, like, sufficient to do well on the test. If you have the answer sheet, you are, just as long as you just fill it in, you are going to do well on the test. You're going to get a perfect score. Um, if you have the ability to breathe, you can do the test. it is something required, so it's like a requirement for doing the test, breathing, can't do it without that, can't take the test if you're dead, but it doesn't help very much. That's what necessary assumption answer choices do, except they're more context-specific, so it would be something like, you know, you have a test center ticket would be a more realistic necessary assumption thing, Um, because, like, if you forgot that, no matter how prepared you are, even if you have the answer sheet, um, so I guess the answer sheet actually isn't sufficient and the few things are sufficient in the real world, you know, but, um, required things don't help you very much. And then something like that strengthens it, like just being really good at logic. Well, if you are really good at logic and do have an answer sheet, who cares? And if you're really good at logic, um, oh, but you could be bad at logic and still do well on the LSAT. Uh, if you just, I don't know, read really precisely, that would probably be enough in a lot of cases.
0: Well, that's funny because that brings us to the world of things that are neither necessary nor sufficient. Like being really good at logic would certainly help; it wouldn't guarantee it, but maybe through the use of some formulas or the use of or being strong in other areas, you could do well on the outside without being good at logic. But I think your your overall example illustrated the point pretty well. Yeah, but yeah, really important to focus on this. Make sure you have this topic down. I've got some stuff yeah. I can add to the chat about it, but. Anyway, what about, we got another question here, someone asking, 10 minutes left at the end of each section, is that bad? Yeah, I think think that's, you're working way too fast.
1: Yeah, I mean, unless you're getting everything right, then it's great. Yeah, then that's great. So (laughs) how are are you scoring? (laughs) Right. Because like, now, when I do a logical reasoning section, if things go well, I often have 10 minutes left, but that's because I've been doing this for years, and I'm way faster than I used to be. Um, but if you're getting a whole bunch of stuff wrong and you got time left, yeah, I would, I would just slow down. And I would also use that time to review because um, time left at the end is actually really great if you can just review the ones you had more trouble on. But you probably shouldn't have that much time unless you're getting almost everything right.
0: Yeah, I think you can afford to slow down. You can afford to slow down, take a breather, spend a bit more time on the tough questions, and then still have a buffer of five or so minutes to go back and handle anything you're unsure of. But I would say it's probably worth slowing down if the accuracy is not high. Let's see. We have another yeah. question here. Fluctuating, fluctuating scores. I think we covered this on one of our podcasts.
1: Sure. I, I just wanted to add one more thing to Larsa, Larsa though. Uh, slow down, but keep in mind what Steve said about like not getting stuck on hard questions. And I, I find hard questions are better to come back to later. So, like if you if you imagine someone who either finishes everything exactly on time or who skips like four hard questions, has three minutes left, and then reviews them afterwards. I think the second person is going to have a better score because like A, they wasted less time on the hard questions and B they've got like time to review those and they have a higher chance of getting them right. When you look back at something rather than if you're just stuck in it. So when you're getting to not rushing, um, it still is good to skip the really hard ones and try and come back at the end with a bit of time.
0: And that's pretty much what I do personally. I'll, I'll flag like three to six questions. To come back to later just because I don't want to risk getting bogged down in the moment where I look at it and I'm like, no, thank you. Don't want to deal with that one right now. And I'll just mark it off and come back later, especially so for like parallel questions, principle application, anything super wordy or things on topics I don't like, like science, for example. I'm just like, you know what? I want to save it. Everything's worth the same. I'll come back later with a fresh perspective, break out of that tunnel vision and have a new way to look at it and make some sense out of it.
1: Okay, someone asked an interesting follow up to this. We'll get back to the score fluctuations, but someone asked an interesting follow up. How can you tell if a question is hard, and are some parts of the test that are harder than the others? Uh, I mean, I would say just like if you don't feel you're understanding it, or it's taking you longer to get through it. Um, and what's hard for one person may be a bit different depending on knowledge. But that's my only measure for like hard things, is just like, do I know what this is saying? Because if you know what a question is saying precisely, then it's easy. So. That's my yeah, I think I think
0: difficulty is a fairly subjective thing, but there are certain commonalities. I'll speak about logical reasoning since difficulty is clearest there, I think. But we do know that there are ways that LSAC increases the difficulty level of questions overall. It, with formal logic questions, they may require linking conditional statements together. They may require taking the contrapositive. They may They may put the conditionals out of order to make you rearrange them in order to link them together. They may use words like unless, except, until, without, that are not clearly necessary nor sufficient condition indicators. They may make it on a tough topic. They may use tough vocabulary words. They may use technical terms. So I think there are all if, like any question may include one or two of those things and it's not too bad, but if they include three or four or five, then it starts to get tougher. And you see that more clearly on questions later in an LR section. LR questions are in a general order of difficulty. So level 5 and level 4, the toughest ones, will more often appear towards the end. So I would be a little more wary of questions there, whereas in contrast, those in the first 10, I would be more likely to trust my instincts and blast through them. But later questions, I would give it a second look.
1: Yeah. Except for the very final two questions on LR, those tend to be a bit easier.
0: Yeah, it's weird. I find like 15 to 22 are typically the toughest, and then it gets a little bit easier, maybe because... People are running out of time, so they decide to punish them for that.
1: I don't know that this uh, applies to. Yeah, I think they're rewarding pacing. I don't know if this applies to uh, RC and LG. I think the easy, the first game is usually not the hardest game, but uh, other than that, any trends or they pretty much all over the place.
0: I have rarely seen the fourth game be the easiest. It has occurred. I think in test thirty six, the fourth game there was just like a weirdly easy game. That that exam, the the third game is one with the bus, the windows and aisles. It's one of the toughest. But overall, I'd say the first is not going to be the hardest. Most likely, the fourth will probably not be the easiest. But I wouldn't stress too much about it. I would just go through them in the order given.
1: Yeah. All right. So back to the score oscillation. So I think we did cover this in a previous one, though I can't remember what we said. We probably have covered like everything in a previous (laughs) one. I think we'll be like the two like rambly men of like podcasting because like we're just saying all the same things but
0: (laughs) we'll just keep Uh, having new new exciting examples to share to illustrate our points
1: yeah Uh, so what did we say about this before
0: score fluctuations everyone's score fluctuates like i said before there's a a, a score band six points so even if everything went right you have a six point variation potentially so this person's saying an eight point variation but that still seems possible to me depends how you slept what you ate idiosyncrasies of those exams
1: Pretty normal. And I'm guessing most of the fluctuation is on, like, a smaller band, and those are, like, the two highest things, that it wasn't, like, 169, 177, 169, no, 177. No. <laughs> um, so, no, this is just totally normal. Uh, it's why... This is actually an extremely strong reason to plan to take the set more than once, because just with, like, no skill change, you could get an 8-point improvement. Probably won't be that drastic, but certainly you could get, like, a 3-point improvement just from, like, random fluctuation in your score band
0: yeah it's totally chance and so give yourself more chances to get closer to the higher end of that even if your true your true innate score was let's say a 173 you could still take it multiple times and get the benefit of having a 177 on your record apply and be accepted everywhere that'd be awesome go for it but i think this circles back how do you get on the higher end aside from what graham said i'd also say it's sleep diet exercise relaxation Being at peak mental performance requires having all those things in check, lined up solidly. And so that's what I really focus on this final week, is just taking it easy and removing stress from your life.
1: Yep, pretty much. Uh, Tips on taking the test overseas? I don't know, I've never done it.
0: Taking the test overseas, I mean, depends on where you are, but I guess be ready for anything. I mean, depending on which country you're in, who knows what the facilities could be like. And definitely allow extra time, get there early. The proctors, I would guess, on average, are less likely to know what they're doing in over, overseas because it's administered less often there. You think that's that's a reasonable guess, Graham?
1: Yeah, I think so. And uh, the only other thing I can say is you don't get the test back. Uh, actually, I do not Do you get the January test back? Is no,
0: Jan- January is unreleased. So right, no one's, so nobody's get, no getting, one's getting, getting it
1: test back. back. But if anyone's listening to this later and, you know, you would be normally getting the June test back, but you're taking it
0: abroad, you do not get that back. Yeah, so. I think overseas is Sunday, though. So show up on the correct day. If you test make tickets on Sunday, <laughs> go, go on Sunday, not Saturday. I know we talk about I'm, Saturday a
1: lot. I'm laughing, but like I would bet that at some person who says podcast will be like, oh, damn. I'm glad I listened to this. Like I was going on Saturday.
0: (laughs) Well, it's better than showing up a day late. Better to be a day early than a day late, I guess.
1: (laughs) Where is everybody? (laughs) I guess you can always go the next day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, let's see what else. Um, We have people taking in June, and then we have a question about the digital LSAT, and I think those are kind of related. I'd say I've been saying this a lot, but anyone taking the LSAT not in January, being specifically June or July, I would go for June if possible because. To me, the digital LSAT is kind of like you know who knows what it's going to be like. We already have a general sense, but I think all else being equal, if you've been practicing paper-pencil, I would try to take the LSAT in paper-pencil format, and June is guaranteed paper-pencil, but July, half of test takers get digital, half get paper-pencil. LSAT ch- LSAC chooses for you, and they don't tell you in advance. And so to me, that sounds like a nightmare. I'd rather get it out of the way, take a guaranteed paper-pencil, and try to register for June, knock it out then. If you, do, if you do digital LSAT July or beyond, it's not the end of the world, of course, but that'll add an extra element of randomness or confusion that is best avoided if possible.
1: I think that's good, cautious advice. At some point, they will release like a, well, they've already got like a little practice tool. At some point, they'll probably release one you can use like on a tablet or something. Um, but nobody, including us, like really knows how this is going to work yet at this point. So there's nobody out there like giving like clear advice that'll, you know, once it starts to become a regular thing, there'll be known best practice and so on that just aren't out there, even if like the digital outside is totally flawless. So I, I agree. Like I would take June if I was prepping.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the the interface is not ideal. And, and the biggest the biggest reason I say that is because you can't really draw freehand on the tablet. You are very limited in the functionality. And so it's rather unintuitive, in my opinion, to, to be switching back and forth from scrap paper to digital. And I think people taking digital are just going to have to make the best of a rough situation. And hopefully in coming years, LSAC will change the format to more user friendly. But for now, yeah. I'd say just try to try to take it in June. You've got, to, you've got several months to make it happen. I think you can do it if you, if you buckle down now.
1: Yeah. Cause I've spoken before about the efficiency gains to come in front of your diagrams, like right beside something. So there's less eye tracking movement. If you have to jump to like a non-standard place on a sheet, then you've definitely got that. And, um, yeah, I think hopefully they'll allow writing on at some point. But for now, it's just scrap paper. So I would be
0: yeah. We got one question in the Q&A here about someone asking about a score drop over the past two practice tests. Is this normal? Well, they also said they were studying harder than ever before. So my guess is that it could be burnout, but also that two exams is not a particularly large sample size. I'd say to people that the average of your most recent five exams is a decent indication of where you stand. What are your thoughts, Graham?
1: Yeah, pretty much the same. I would ask the same person, uh, do they have any practice sections as well that could like increase the data set? Like have those been falling? And subjectively, do you feel like sort of low energy? Is stuff that like should be easy, hard? Like, I don't know. Is it hard to say, cook a meal, shower? You don't feel like leaving the house? Like stuff that you don't feel like seeing people Anything that's like just a little bit different and easy stuff that should be easy feels hard. Those are signs of burnout. Those are signs too, like if your breathing feels shallow, uh, insomnia. I don't know the other signs. Um, but if you're seeing those, and actually, you know what we said, like not much is going to change the past week. I would just err on the side of resting more. Um, but it, it is very normal to have one bad score. Like everybody... Practically everybody I've worked with has this. So they're like, "Oh my god, oh my god, I got a 143, and normally I get a 159. What's going on? What's going on?" And it's fine. It's fine. Everybody gets that. Um, if you got two, that might be burnout, or maybe you just got unlucky and got two of them. And like, good thing it's not test day. Um, so I would like subjectively assess how you feel outside of that. Like, are you showing any other signs of burnout? Google some signs of burnout and see if you're doing them beyond what we mentioned. Uh, Steve, can you think of any other signs of burnout?
0: I think it comes down to people just how many hours are you putting into a day? I think that's the best way to tell. If you're putting in three, four, or five hours a day consistently, especially those who are studying full time, they run the risk of this. And it's just a question of dialing it down a bit, taking a few more breaks. I think if I looked at someone's schedule and how they spent their day, I'd be able to tell if they were going to suffer from it or not. It just comes down to too much imbalance in life. and. Be almost like an addiction where it's hard to te- to tear yourself away from the exam, and so I would encourage people, especially you know, over here in New York. I'm sure Montreal's even worse. It's like freezing; it's the single digits, and you're not getting any sunlight at all. Period on a day like this, and that's that's disastrous to me. I think seasonal affective disorder is real, and in January we're all especially prone to it. And so I think it's a, partially about just shifting gears a bit and giving yourself the freedom to take a break as a way to rest and recuperate and get out of that slump.
1: Yeah, and I would say for those who are studying for a later exam, like one, take a day off of the LSAT every week. And two, plan for like a two week break somewhere in there where you just don't do the LSAT. A lot of people that have gotten large improvements that I've talked to had some sort of breaks in there. And I think it's an important element that like doesn't get talked about enough. And people think they've got to work hard, 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 hard. And it's gonna be a constant thing. But that's not how our systems work. They need downtime to simulate what you've learned.
0: Yeah, agreed. I, I build day by I build um breaks into my day-by-day day study plans. I, I build in typically a day or two per week. And I really want people to actually take those breaks. I built them in every week, even if you're studying over a seven-month, 28-week timeline. It's really important. You can't cram this, it's not a memorization test. And the exam will always be there tomorrow. There's over 80 exams. There's over a hundred altogether, nearly a hundred at this point. Some unnumbered. So there's tons of practice practice material, and there will it will always be waiting for you. There's always more to do. There's nearly 10,000 LSAT questions at this point. So you're you're not gonna you're not gonna come to a time where you're gonna have completed everything most likely, unless you're in our shoes doing this for a living. Most people don't do every exam, nor do you need to. It's okay to slow down. You could do only 10 exams ever, and that could be enough for you. So think about going more in depth rather than just doing exam after exam after exam. It's not like exam number 20 or 25 is going to suddenly make the light shine through.
1: Yeah, exactly. Quality over quantity. You don't need all the quantity. Um, I just want to take a quick moment in here to say that if you've been listening to all this in the webinar and you've liked it, then you effectively just listened to an LSAT pros podcast. And if you thought it was favorable, then I've just put in like an iTunes link and you would be totally justified in clicking that, putting in a rating and writing what you thought of what you just heard because this was effectively a live podcast that we're going to be releasing tomorrow. So uh, we would really, really love it if you did that.
0: Yeah, we would really appreciate any ratings, reviews, spreading the word if you're active on any message boards, please feel free to give us a plug when appropriate. You know, we really rely on you guys to help us get the word out. I'm sure you all know other people studying for the LSAT applying to law school. And so, yeah, we, we appreciate anything you guys do to help get the word out there.
1: Sometimes
0: it's available, available on Android. Yes, it is available on Android. I'll try to put the link in there as well.
1: um and this applies to like any podcast thing just go search lsat pros and it should show up and actually if you're on android and want to leave a review there that'd be great too because i'm guessing they have their own review system if anyone has any other questions we can uh, answer those they're just i think we got through everything so
0: but yeah we appreciate you guys coming out here and please again spreading the word leaving ratings and reviews it's especially important as we're just Launching this and getting it off the ground. This is really a prime time this week to get the word out, especially with people taking the LSAT on Saturday and Sunday. We we yeah. really appreciate your help.
1: M- Medea just says uh, thank you both. You guys are awesome and have given me the confidence I needed. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Medea. Um, thanks for thanks for coming along.
1: Are you on iPhone? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so would you be willing to click that link and put exactly that in the review thing? Because that would be uh, that'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thank you. We appreciate it. Well, if anything else, all you guys can feel free to reach out to us directly. Please email info at lsatpros.com with questions and we'll do our best to cover them in a future podcast episode. Episode We'll be releasing the podcast every week and it'll be the same format question and answer, but you guys supply yeah. the content.
1: Yeah, exactly. I would say info at lsatpros is the best place to send them, but you can send us uh, in other places too and we'll find them.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. But again... Graham, what's the best way for folks to reach you for anyone listening out there?
1: Uh, I would say graham at lsathacks.com. And if you want to follow me somewhere else on Instagram, I'm graham underscore Blake. That's G-R-A-E-M-E underscore Blake.
0: Awesome. And I'm Steve Schwartz at the LSAT blog. You can reach me at lsatunplugged at gmail.com. I'm also really active on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com slash blog, and I'm putting up new videos all the time. And the podcast is going to be every week indefinitely.
1: Yeah. Uh, Someone says, you guys are awesome. One last question. Would you suggest resting until Saturday? I mean, depends how you're feeling. Like if you're burnt out, yes. If not, no. I would keep working. Just like maybe take it like easier than you did in the past three weeks and rest the final day or two beforehand. But there's still time to like drill some stuff like, you know, the rule substitution we talked about. Um, or any particular hard point or, like, doing games, repeating them without estimations, like, there's, there's still stuff you can do um, that might get you, like, a few points, so it's worth looking at. <laughs> um, so I'll explain the laughter in a moment. Um, yeah, so there's still, like, a bit of stuff worth looking at, unless you're feeling super tired and stressed. If you're feeling super tired and stressed, then I would either relax, like, I could do fun stuff, or maybe just, like, organize stuff in your life if, like, I don't know, the dishes aren't done, you haven't done cooking in a while, Uh, there's like a bunch of little things nagging at you and take care of those little loose nagging hands. I find when I'm stressed, that tends to actually be one of the best things that de-stresses me. It's like taking care of all the little stuff as well as just like going for walks and stuff. But if you're not feeling that, then no, do keep working.
0: Yeah, I would err on the side of, of doing less rather than more, especially in this final week. If you decide to postpone to March or June, then that's a different story and you could certainly spread out your studying and get a lot done. But at this point, it's largely about pulling it all together. Either you know it or you don't. Just try to... Do anything that will help you boost your confidence and relax at the same time.
1: And uh, my my laugh was because someone in the chat said, "Also, thanks for not naming your podcast." Else had bros. Wait, it was was pretty hard. But um, yeah, I was like, it's a struggle. (laughs) (laughs) All right, someone asks a late question. I've been stuck at a score one hundred and sixty for the past ten practice tests without much fluctuations, even though I felt really confident and confused on others. How should I approach my study in the future? It doesn't feel like drilling works, and a bit discouraged. Thanks for the podcast. Um, so it sounds like you should like swap problems with the person with the fluctuating scores, because um, like <laughs> it's just an incredible consistency. Um, I don't know. Have you ever seen this, Steve? Uh,
0: so it's a score plateau. That that I have seen that happen, and it's about changing your approach. So if drilling's not working for you, I'd be curious to know more. Like what resource or resources are you using? How much have you improved? up to this point, like what was your starting score versus the 160, and then have a sense of any particular weak areas. With the 160, you're doing pretty well and have a, a decent proficiency in the exam, but there's probably still room to improve in all areas. So I want to dig deeper into what's giving you trouble in LR or games, for example, and maybe picking up some skills in those different areas. What are your thoughts, Graham?
1: Right, but have you, have you ever seen someone just like I've seen score plateaus where like the score isn't really going up, but someone just getting literally the same. Well, actually, I don't know. If no, my my guess
0: is that my guess is that this person is not literally at 160. That, that would, be, okay, that would okay. be remarkable. That'd be remarkable. I'd be like, yeah, more than a <laughs> coin ten times and getting heads every time this person. You're right. They're, like
1: they're an probably an like 158, 161, 159, 160, 161. I'm guessing that's the case. If you are actually getting yeah. 160 each time, let us know. And we'll, we want to like study you for science lot <laughs> <Enter> the lottery. <laughs> but, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, <laughs> but no, yeah, score, if it's just a score plateau, then I think, um, first of all, a break, uh, if you know you're not taking it Saturday or even if you are., um, take a break helps with plateaus. it's a, if you're taking a longer study period, this is it a really good time just to take one or two weeks off and then come back to it fresh., uh, but the other thing would be just to sort of analyze everything you're doing and try and think like, what are still the areas that I don't understand? What are things that I don't know about and could improve upon? What are specific skills that I could learn? And like go ahead and read different things. Maybe like one thing I like recommending in cases like this is actually someone reading like explanations for like every question on my site when you do a prep test. So don't just do the ones you got wrong, read everything and look for like little tidbits where you're like, oh, what's the thing that he pointed out? Why did he point that out? Um, that's interesting. And that's like a little thread you can use to like look deeper and find like a thing that you haven't got the hang of yet
0: yeah i think that's solid i think additional resources reviewing in more depth deepening your understanding at this point i think that's that's really where you'd want to focus at this point but hopefully you've got some more time before you take the lsat and you can work on whatever your weak areas may be but i think it's a question about identifying them and any shortcomings in your approach yeah google play with the podcast someone asked about that it's not it just got approved but it may take 24 hours to be entered into the store so if someone is searching android just bear with us a little bit it takes time to work on their end to get in there but in the meantime you can definitely listen through our website lsatpros.com or if you're an ios user then there's obviously itunes but it'll probably kind of get into all these other places in the meantime over the past over over the next few days or so it is on spotify as well if that's your thing
1: yeah And you may find some third-party app also has it indexed. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Like some things just take whatever is in the Apple index. Um, So there may be some Android app that does that. Uh, Like Pocket Casts, I think, is a cross-platform one. Um, I haven't actually checked if we're on there, but that's just like a thing off the top of my head we might uh, show up on.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely could be. It's funny how this podcast world works. Everything's indexed in different ways. But yeah, I'm just reinserting these links here. And yeah, check again tomorrow if you don't see it. But yeah, it's, it, it'll be there. It's definitely on our website and iTunes for sure. What do you think, Greg? Right, Have we well, pretty much covered it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Thanks, everyone, for showing up and for asking us the questions. And hope you've enjoyed it. And I'd like to wish you all good luck on the Saturday LSAT. Or if you're listening to this in the future, then uh, good luck on whatever else that you're taking.
0: You know, all the best, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Reach out. Info at LSAT.